Blackstone Audiobooks presents Waterloo by Karen Olson. For John. Waterloo, population 600,000. This provincial capital, known for its friendly, laid back atmosphere and vibrant local music scene, is nestled between Blackland Prairie to the southeast and Limestone Plateau to the north and west. The Alameda River dips below the center of town like a fat man's belt. The city is home to the state's flagship university and its governing assembly. Surrounded by attractive hills and spring-fed streams, Waterloo is regarded as a pleasant city by locals and visitors alike. Its climate, however, is often unpleasant. In most years, a thick, hot haze descends upon the region in mid-April and suffocates the populace until late October. A north-south interstate highway built 50 years ago and annually responsible for dozens of traffic deaths divides the city, poor sections, to the east, downtown to the west. Farther west are violet hills that used to afford genial vistas of the town before the smog and subdivisions arrived. From the hills it is possible to view the city overall and draw therefrom an impression of sweet curving streets and graceful sweeping lawns and the unequivocally happy sound of children always at play, a writer once observed. Closer on, he continued, the feeling is only partly confirmed, though it should seem enough to have even a part. That writer died in 1978. The majority of Waterloo's residents don't bother themselves with the city's history such as it is. During the early years of the Republic, there was much debate over where to locate the capital, until a commission of the region's gouty elder statesmen chose Waterloo, a frontier encampment, over a more civilized but fever-prone rival on the coast. The encampment became a town, and pioneers arrived, full of grand ideas— but they soon discovered that the thin soils were inhospitable to their more ambitious schemes. They settled. They suppressed their fantasies and consoled themselves with books, music, and ale. Waterloo grew to be a center of learning, a good town for live entertainment, and an incubator for laziness. Rather than visionaries, the city would eventually harbor state legislators and musicians— Two populations, who, despite their very different styles of dress, were united in their desires not to have to work too hard, to be locally renowned, and to drink beer paid for by somebody else. In this, they were generally content, though when the weather shifted, one could occasionally catch a whiff of old buried ambitions. Only then, only after Waterloo had spent more than a hundred years wallowing in the sun, was it hit by boom times— much as this ran counter to its indigenous spirit. At the turn of the 21st century, the city sprung an economy like a leak, like a tear in the cloud cover, and money poured down into new enterprises created with the toss of a wrist, a couple of keystrokes. High technology sent its conquistadors, builders rushed into action, the air grew thick with sawdust and receipts. 
And the poor old musicians, the state employees, the bookstore clerks, they stumbled through the malls and office parks, bewildered, uneasy, cursing under their breath, hoping that some portion of the windfall might find its way into their own ragged pockets, yet forever wishing it had all turned out differently. They couldn't help themselves. Part One Chapter One his ability to put tasks in sequence was the first thing to go. William Stanley Sabert, the former congressman, ambled into the kitchen carrying in his good hand, the left one, a glass tumbler. With the weaker hand, the only partially recovered right, he pressed a sheaf of papers to his ribs, but not carefully enough. His attention slipped, and then the papers slipped. They fluttered to the floor. Pick them up, he told himself. He could not. Certain capillaries in his brain had gone dry. They dangled like shrunken, empty gloves. He couldn't pick up the legal pad pages he'd covered with notes, or the hearing transcripts, or... Where did that come from? The Christmas card that slid out from the sprawl. The notion of retrieving all of it loomed, and then faded, as showers of tiny particles, boluses, bits and pieces of the midbrain clot that had just exploded inside his head infiltrated the network of his vessels. He couldn't pick up the pages on the floor because first he would have had to put the drinking glass down. He would have had to lean over. He would have had to reach for the papers and clasp them with his good hand. The sequence of steps had escaped him. It was his third stroke, though, and he did have an idea of the enemy. He fought back. He'd come into the kitchen to fix something to eat. He intended to do that, no matter that making a sandwich was a more complex task than fetching the papers that had fallen. He opened the refrigerator and set his drinking glass on the top shelf next to the orange juice. He closed the refrigerator. He took a bag of English muffins from the bread box, pulled open the oven door, and placed the bag inside the oven. Next, tuna fish. But as he straightened himself, Sabert saw only color, throbbing reds and greens. When the room returned, pale and blurry, his eyes were flooded. He touched his sleeve to his face. Dishes sat in the sink. Errant cashews and flakes of cereal lurked under the cabinets. Mice lived in the bread box, and that was just the kitchen. There were also the hairs clouding the bathroom floor, the towels heaped in a corner, the bottle of Chardonnay forgotten in the toilet tank. A shelf in the bedroom closet had collapsed, and a hail of campaign buttons and umbrellas and old photographs and the silver serving forks from his first marriage, Delia had taken the spoons, had landed among shoes and old pine inserts. For all his storied acuity, his talent for clarification, for cutting through legislative knots in a few incisive strokes, Will Sabert had always been a force of entropy. And now these papers spilled across the linoleum. He'd collected them to show the reporter, to help explain the work that had engaged him over the past year. What a relief, a pleasure to have stumbled upon such a project, one that gave shape to his solitary days— High time he revealed it to someone. A legal method. He had discovered it. Having devoted to that end many weeks of research, quite a lot of sorting through precedent and records of international tribunals, a method to end all wars, this was, entailing minimal adjustments to current statutes and treaty agreements. 
He had condensed the argument in favor of it, that is to say the argument for ending war, to a simple watertight petition that could be understood by any high school student. It was clear, after all, that the wars of the twentieth century had been unjust, unnecessary, and without question inefficient from the point of view of costs. He'd hoped to live long enough to expand his premise into a book, but lately he'd begun to fear otherwise. Hence his plan to go over it all with the reporter. There was some doubt in his mind, though, as to whether the reporter had already come and gone. The first stroke had been almost twenty years earlier, a tingling on the way to the cafeteria, and by the time he sat down to eat, his hand and arm had gone numb. He pretended to have lost his appetite. By later that afternoon, he was back to normal. He went on working just as before. The next one had followed his retirement, a headache unlike any headache he'd ever had, icicles splitting his skull into pieces, a trip to the hospital, a poor prognosis. That time his whole right side crumpled, and proper names hid themselves. He could say the words son and daughter, but the names of his own children wouldn't give themselves up. Now his mind was beset by a cascade, a closet shelf falling, an avalanche of old possessions, his children, his mother, his first bicycle, his dog, the fountain he and his brother had ridden their bicycles to on the terraced grounds of the state capitol, a fountain long since bulldozed to make way for office buildings and parking garages. Its water had spouted from pink gargoyles' mouths. There, one terrible hot day when he was ten or eleven, an older boy trying to hawk a few bruised peaches had taken a swing at Will after Will had called him a capitalist. He dodged the punch. His little brother Robbie had gotten it instead. Smacked in the face, bloody nose, scared to fight, Will had grabbed Robbie.